Welcome to the MMA Geeks Sea Level Podcast. This is Stan Drive here with my friend and co-host Nick Braccia, here to talk about UFC and ESPN 7 from last weekend where Alistair Overeem took a gruesome loss to Rosenstruck. And we're going to talk about UFC 245 coming up this weekend, which is a really stacked card. Three title fights at the top, several former champions under that, a bunch of big names. I mean, there are two names on this entire card that I actually had to research a little bit. Outside of that, I was fairly familiar with most of these fighters. Nick, what did you think of last week's card, buddy? I was really, really excited and happy because I uh, went undefeated, 6-0. and and if you go back a couple of weeks, I did. I had, I had. Though there was one draw, I had no losing picks on the previous card. So I haven't. I haven't selected a fighter that lost since November 9th. So for over a month, for over a month, Nick Braccia, your co-host, has not selected a single fighter who's been defeated. Can you? Can you say that? Can you say that, Stan? About about your picks. I mean, Nick, we took like three weeks off. There were no events for three of those weeks. I'm not sure that... Yeah, no, this is very impressive, Nick. <laughs> very good stuff. There were tons of events. I was doing picks at all of the, all, the, all of the indie events around the territories. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> I was, undefe- I was undefeated at all at all of those in the uh, in the basements in the in the church tents and um, <laughs> the local the local You're carnivals. You tabs on every little one oh, of yeah. these uh, local fights. Well, as you know, my my office is close to five points, the Watt and Church Street Boxing. So I've got such a magical touch that I just pop in during lunch now and I tell everyone who's going who's going <laughs> to awesome. get the better of who in sparring, and then I leave. It's uh, I gotta say, like I try to I try to have humility, but when you've got a gift like this, you just want to share it with the world. That is fair to say, and you know what? I'm truly blessed and lucky to be hosting this podcast with you, Nikolai. For that reason, but maybe alone. you'll learn a thing or two about martial arts. I hope to, Nick. I hope to learn as much as I possibly can from you. Uh, I love this trash talk, Nick, because you've really only had two wins in the last six or seven events. I don't. You're hamming it up. It's and I'm into it. man. That's such a Western way of thinking about the past. I try to. <laughs> I I think about the future. I see life. Life is it's a flat circle, and I am on. You know, I'm just riding. A, I'm doing my victory lap around <laughs> around time's flat circle at the moment. But okay, let's talk about the ream because the the ream got a uh, I guess what's called a uh, you know he he got kind of like a, a Glasgow smile. Uh, what a nasty man! He he got he got massacred. His upper lip. He fought. So he bad. you know he was winning. He was winning the fight. He fought. Talk, man. And I I can't say that I'm not someone who's prone to mental lapses, but it's not easy to focus while like putting forth so much energy and defending and putting out enough offense to win and getting takedowns for 24 minutes and 50 seconds against a guy like that. But to hear that last clapper and like not, not get out of the way, not like, I don't, I don't know. I just, I feel like, there were ways for there were ways for Halster Overeem to survive that last ten seconds without getting without catching a, an enormous one two. I don't know if it would have been to go you know to shoot for to shoot for a double, if it would if it was um, to pull guard, if it was to use footwork and just run, if he wasn't feeling it. But somehow he ate a you know a 
a pretty big left and then as murderous a right hand as we've ever seen. It basically exploded his face. Yeah, up until this fight, it was left side strikes that scored knockouts for Rosenstruck in the UFC. This time it was his right hand that split Overeem's upper lip open badly and knocked him down. Look, the truth of the matter is that some referees would not have stopped that fight at that moment, and Overeem could have still walked away with a decision victory. In yeah, this I th- I, I'm not sure how I feel how I feel about that. I guess I kind of feel like, as, mu- as it, much as it's cool and it's a better narrative for Rosenstrike's career, and we've got like this new player, it, it wasn't quite... I don't think it. It was a nasty cut. I'm not sure it was quite a walk like a walk away knockdown knockout. No, but he kind of made it a walk away knockdown, and the fact that Overeem tried to stand up and started to kind of fall toward the cage didn't help. I think if Overeem would have just stayed on his back and waved him in, kind of like the you know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu fighter that doesn't have any takedown offense does often enough. Yeah. If he would have done that, I think it would have just continued to a decision and it would have all been fine. But then also Dan Mergliata is a weird ref. He can call fights early, he can call fights late, he he's had, fairly inconsistent. <laughs> he had a, yeah, in the, uh, right, in the other heavyweight bout, he did one of the most egregious things I've ever seen a referee do, but we could talk about that in a minute. Yeah, that, that Ben Rothwell, Stefan Struve, I do want to quickly mention, I basically felt like I actually... I picked Overeem, and I believe that he was a better technician, and I believe that he should be able to get that early takedown and either pound him out or submit him in the first based on Rosenstruck's UFC debut, in which he looked you know, pretty defenseless on the ground for the most part in the first few moments of that first round until he scored a knockout in the second. In this case, Overeem took him down. He kind of held him down, and it's almost like he was scared to really throw because he was afraid of what was going to happen after, or he was scared to throw because he was afraid to let Rosenstruck get up. And once I saw that Rosenstrike survived on the ground, I live betted and invested heavily into Rosenstrike. And then as the fight wore on, I was like, oh man, maybe that was a bad call. I got really good odds because of Overeem's top position when I did place those bets. But man, he really did save me. He uh, he scored at the end there, which made for a nice win victory for me as far as my betting goes for the event. But yeah, it seemed like Rosenstruck just wasn't throwing a whole lot. And when he was throwing, Overeem just simply lifted his guard kept himself protected, the most basic of defense if you think about it, but it worked. For the most part, it really did work. Overeem, for a guy with a very hittable chin, you know, he's certainly showed up a lot of his defense, and I think training at elevation, uh, with elevation fight team is going a long way for him. But Rosenstruck I don't think is, he's chinny. I don't think Overeem's a chinny guy. I think he fights other monsters. It's not like, you know, he when he's, the, the shots that have taken Alistair Overeem down have have been shots that you gotta believe will 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 flatten most guys. I mean, maybe it's true, but he's got ten plus KO or TKO losses at this point. The guy's been knocked out plenty of times. He's got eighteen losses. He's, he's got been knocked out plenty of times, re- but but by yeah. But I, as I look at the list, yeah, I don't right. see it by heavy hitters. It's by big guys. Yeah, it's by it's by big guys. Um, in the co-main event, we had Cynthia Calvillo going up against Marina Rodriguez. Marina Rodriguez controlled the first two rounds. Cavillo seemed, not only did she not make weight by five pounds neck, which is just huge, she also apparently quit uh, Team Alpha Male in the very beginning of this training camp, moved entirely to Tiger Muay Thai, and Justin Buckles was in her corner. It was such a weird situation that I actually decided that I believed in Marina Rodriguez more for that reason. And what happened was Marina Rodriguez controlled the first two rounds, was able to keep it standing and score more. Cynthia, you know, sort of semi-kept up, but she definitely lost the first two rounds. But then Cynthia 
was able to get that third round takedown, which I expected her to do early when I initially picked her. And she pounded away on Marina Rodriguez and scored a 10-8 round, which ended up making for a draw. Uh, did you think the draw was fair in that case, Nick? Uh, yeah, I think I think the draw was I think the draw was fair. Any thoughts about this this whole situation with Cynthia leaving Team Alpha Male in the middle of her training camp and actually switching to a new uh, a new school and then not making weight? I mean, what is going on with this chick? I don't know about the not making weight. I think Tam has been a weird place for a long time. A lot of like I think what we've learned if, about Team Alpha Male is it's it's the Uriah Faber show, and yeah. if you ain't down with that, then they got two words for you. That is accurate. Some people are going to think that's good. Some th- people are going to think that's bad. There's still there's still good fighters coming out of Team Alpha Male and guys competing at a high level. It's not what it used to be. It needs a proper head it's coach. It's not what it used to be. I mean, they've had they've had a lot of guys in there. They had you know they've had Buckles. They had obviously um, all that success with Dwayne Ludwig. They had Martin Campman in for a while, but it's. You know, it's Uriah Faber's show. It's his company. Yeah, he keeps it running on his terms. There's no question about that. We should quickly talk about Ben Rothwell, Stefan Struve. Weird situation. Stefan Struve was kicking out of distance, doing a lot of damage, doing fairly well against the slower, more plodding Ben Rothwell, who clearly is not the same man when he's not on steroids, especially at this late age. I think he's like something like 37 at this point, even though Struve is only 31. And it was a weird situation. Rothwell accidentally low blowed Struve twice and on that second time it seemed like Dan Bergliotta was kind of convincing Struve to stay in the fight he essentially explained to him while trying to cover his mic ineffectively that he would take a point from Ben Rothwell which you're not really supposed to tell that to the injured fighter to the foul fighter before you do it and he said you know if you stop now it'll be a no contest but if you make it to the third round it can go to decision you can kind of decide at the end of the round. And Struve kind of took the bait, and even though he was horribly hurt by both low blows, it seemed like, he took the bait and continued to fight. And, of course, Ben Rothwell, having just been deducted a point after losing the first round, decided he was going to go all out, and he ended up getting that second round knockout at 4.57 of that second round with three seconds left. Unbelievable. It's, it's funny how both heavyweight fights ended uh, seconds with seconds left to the round, although different rounds grounded. Um... Weird situation, man. It's unfortunate because Stefan Struve looked probably the best he has in a long time, especially standing up. He's usually a guy who comes back. He's not usually a guy who dominates early and then uh, loses by comeback. Ben Rothwell gets a much-needed victory, but I think the days of Ben Rothwell in the top 10 are over, and I think I'm done betting on Ben Rothwell. These last two events have showed me that I should not be placing money on this man. He's not reliable at all. I still might put some money on him just because that division's so weak, and I don't know who they're going to give him to finish out his contract. Yeah. Struve's jab, Struve, you know, he was he was using his jab at least, but you know, Rothwell doesn't didn't at the time seem to be bringing much to the table. It was a it was a it was just a train wreck of a fight. The crowd was disappointing, showing no sympathy for Struve, just wanting the fight to go on. It always sucks to watch a guy in that much pain. I agree. Mergliata definitely screwed up in the way that he suggested where that what the judges scoring had been to Struve was really, um, I think a a poor it was a lapse in judgment for him. So yeah, let, I, I don't, not a fight. I, not honestly, not a fight I ever want to think about again. I just feel bad for Stefan Struve. He's had a uh, he when we when he first started. I really thought he was you know he looked like a blue chip prospect, a guy that size and that age, and he's just been knocked out so many times. Never really learned uh, to fight in a style befitting of his physical gifts, and uh, I'd rather just not really see these guys fight anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to see both of these guys fight, unfortunately, but I, I don't I don't disagree with you. I, it, I wouldn't lose anything by not having to watch either guy compete. Aspen Ladd picked out a resounding victory over Yana Kuniskaya. Once again, when Aspen Ladd gets top position, she is nasty. She is a finisher. It seemed like she got a serious talking to in the corner in between the second and third rounds after a couple of competitive rounds, which I thought Aspen Ladd was in the lead on. And then she came out, gangbusters, landed a huge right hand, pounded out Yana Kuniskaya, who is a pretty decent fighter in her own right. Aspen Ladd, once again, looking spectacular. And I will say, I, I watched that uh, Jermaine Durandamy loss, Aspen Ladd's only loss of her career in her prior fight. And Nick, that was absolutely an early stoppage. Um, I'm not saying that she would have beat Durandamy, because Durandamy is really, really hard to take down, and Aspen Ladd was not going to outstrike her at all. But... That definitely was an early stoppage, and I think the weight cut had a lot to do with it. She looked in incredible shape leading up to the fight and in the fight, and I think she's fixed whatever mistakes she made in that last training camp that led to the horrific weight cut. Um, I, I'm seeing Aspen Ladd as a very, very serious prospect. I think she's championship material, if not championship, certainly top two or three for that 135-pound division. Yeah, my feelings on her are... I'm curious about 135. I think her her lack of length and her height are going to be an issue. I'd rather see her at 125. Um, but well, you know, we'll see. What I will say is that uh, she's got she's got real pop. We don't see a lot of knockdowns like that at this weight class, unless you're Nunez. Um, and I thought that the way that she came out after two rounds that I hadn't seen anything quite like that since. Um, Greg Jackson yelled at Carlos Condit between rounds two and three against Rory McDonald to have a fighter kind of like snap out of it and come out like a fucking maniac. And uh, she just landed that she landed that one two with just, you know, confidence and ruthlessness and killer instinct. And it, you know, it, she, when she hit, when she hit Yana Kuniskaya, she, Kuniskaya flew the way that people used to fly when, uh, when they get touched by Johnny Hendricks. So she's got some pop. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I thought that Cody Stamen got screwed against Song yes. Dong. He clearly controlled, uh, at least two of those three rounds and, Song Yudong was deducted a point at some at some point in this uh, in this fight for I think a uh, a, a leg yeah. strike to the head of yep. a grounded opponent, and still Cody Stamen walked away with just a draw. This is insane to me. I had actually a lot of money on Cody Stamen, so I'm pissed about it. Um, I had money on him by decision, which gave me much better odds. He was already a pretty big underdog, and I just figured it couldn't hurt to plop some money down on that guy. Um, I was live betting on this one as well. Really sucked. What are you going to do? Um, Song Yudong, obviously, he hasn't been taken down up until this point. And I said in the last episode that uh, he has 100% takedown defense in the UFC. However, he hadn't fought any actual legitimate wrestlers leading up to this bout. And I gave him the edge because both guys fought Alejandro Perez in their last bouts. And, you know, one fight was kind of topsy-turvy and, and, and more competitive uh, by Cody Stamen. And he won that decision, and Song Yudong scored a resounding first-round knockout. So I gave Yudong the edge in this one, but man, Cody Stamen looked really good. He absolutely deserved the victory. That yeah. kind of sucked. Uh, Rob Font uh, with a, a very competitive win over Fight Ricky of the night, Simone. baby. Great fight. Really nice performance by Font. Yes, sir, I agree. Tim Means over Tiago Alves, first-round knockout. That's about what I expected, even though Tiago looked like he was scoring a little bit right leading up to that. Um, Bryce Mitchell, first round submission over Matt Sale. Just a walk right through. This guy's something special. He's insane, Nick. 
but he is something special, honest to God. Uh, Birna Jandiroba, somebody who I want a lot of money on as well, over Mallory Martin, uh, just a first-round submission. Like, she is clearly a great wrestler. She is an excellent grappler. Her stand-up sucks, and she needs to work on that, but I think she can get away with it at 115. And then Mahmoud Muradov scored a third-round knockout over Trevor Smith. I mean, this was the stuff of highlight reels for years to come, not just for Muradov, but for the UFC. The way that... Trevor Smith completely shut off and just turned around and dropped face first onto the floor. Incredible knockout by Muradov, and I look forward to seeing him compete. Against who? Who's? Let's do the matchmaking for Muradov because he's had, you know, two fights in the last couple months, and he's just crushed basically. Um, Who do you know? Who do we give him? If we're talking top fifteen, I mean, you couldn't do wrong with an Anderson Silva. Although I wouldn't be surprised if Silva didn't want that fight. Uh, you've got Antonio Carlos Jr., Brad Tavares, Uriah Hall, some of those guys at the bottom end of that top 15, I think I think is very fair. And then maybe depending on what happens uh, between Ian Heinich and Omar Ahmedov this weekend, maybe one of those guys would be an option as well since they're on the same timeline. I wouldn't necessarily give him anyone ranked above that yet. I, I would love to see him because middleweight's getting really competitive, really high level in that, in that top 10. Uh, so I'd like to see him climb up there a little bit on the slow side. And look, he can be a real, real prospect. I think it would be interesting to see him against somebody like Brad Tavares, who can threaten with the takedown. Omari Ahmedov, who can threaten with the takedown. I think that could be a very interesting matchup. What are your thoughts? I give him Eric Anders. That's a little bit slower than even I'm looking at. I have nothing I have nothing against that. He's way faster than Anders, and we know how Anders does against much yeah, faster. Yeah, I give him Anders because that, that, can, that can kind of like end the Eric Anders experiment, a guy who had been in the in the main event spot. Um, and then after that, you've got the Carlos Jr.'s Vittori Jaco, you know, level, you know, and maybe, you know, let's, I think he's, you know, he's three, I think he's three fights away from being a, being a top 10 guy um, in a division that's stacked. And he's only had um, like prelim, prelim fights so far. So I think Anders being a guy who's been in the, you know, in the feature position on the card, feature position and the main event position would be a really good scalp and I think it's a I think it's a very winnable fight. I think that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you quickly, who do you envision for Rosenstrike next? You and I spoke about this a little bit after he called out the guy that nobody wants to fight at heavyweight. And Ghana wants to fight him. Yeah, I think Ghana wants to fight him, but I but I also think that all for me like Nganu should be next should be the winner uh, should get the winner of Cormier Stipe. And that following following his perfor- his really gritty performance against Blagov, uh, that the like Rosenstrike against the Black Beast, um, in kind of a tight as a title yes. shot eliminator is is must see TV. I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like it sets up a little bit of a playoff. If you do Rosenstrike, Black Beast, and Blades Dos Santos, and then have those winners fight, and they get the win, and they'll get they'll get the winner of of uh, either get Ganu. They'll either get Ganu or they'll get the winner of a Ganu versus the winner of Stipe Cormier. That's twenty. That's 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 a very very exciting top tier heavyweight division for twenty twenty. Couldn't agree with you more. We are going to take a break, come back, and preview UFC two forty five for you guys. Get into our draft picks, and after that, we're going to break down some of the betting options. Another winning week for me. We will be back, folks. And we are back to the MMA Geek C-Level podcast. Nick Braccia, myself, Stan Drive, 
going to talk about UFC 245 and all of the riches that that brings. A stacked card, three title fights headlining, Kamaru Usman, Kobe Covington, Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky, Amanda Nunes versus Jermaine Durandamy, Jose Aldo, Marlon Moraes, Peter Yan, and Uriah Faber. These are just the main card fights. This is truly, truly stacked. And then a bunch of names under that. Nick, we're going to get into our draft picking system, as uh, most of our listeners should probably know by now. We each take turns picking a fighter on the card. In this case, we're going to end up with six picks apiece, and then I'm going to pick the tiebreaker, and whoever gets the most number of winning fighters on their picks ends up winning the night. Nick, for my very first pick on this one, I'm going to go with a fighter who I think is Technically not necessarily all there, but he's got perseverance, he's got power, he's got a good team behind him and Tiger Muay Thai. I'm going to pick Peter Yan to beat Uriah Faber. That's amazing. Not, not what you expected, I assume? Not what I, not only not what I expected, I'm picking Faber in this fight. Oh, I'm very interested in that. See, the thing with me is I know Faber got that first round knockout over Ricky Simone and he landed that big right hand. The thing is, Peter Yan has not shown a bad chin, right? If Peter Yan is losing a fight, it's because someone's a little more technical than he is. And that was Jimmy Rivera. He wasn't doing all that well in that bout leading up to moments where he was able to just get a knockdown at the end of a couple of those rounds in order to clinch the victory, score the decision. Um, Uri Faber lost to Jimmy Rivera. He was basically outgunned in a slow fight by Rivera, I think in a five-rounder several years back. I know that he came back with a victory there, and I, I, I'm kind of surprised that you disagree with this pick. I do see a way for Faber to win here since he's probably overall more technical, but I think Peter Yan is just going to push him to the point where Faber's going to have trouble keeping up toward the end of the fight, even though early on it will be competitive. Peter Yan might not be the most technical, but he hits very hard, and he has a serious pressure style that gives a lot of guys trouble. I expect that to be the case here, Nick. Uh, What's your argument for Faber? I mean, well, I mean, mostly it's not a strong argument for Faber. One, I think the odds are insane. I think minus 470 plus 375 is crazy I, agree. I think Faber's in re- I don't know what he's done I think he's in really good shape I think he looked quick um in the fight against Simone who's no slow who's no slow poke and I think Faber's I think Faber's gonna wrestle Jan I think he's gonna go back to his roots and I think he's one of the best scramblers we've ever seen and I just think I think from a, a grappling and scrambling point of view that Faber is gonna be all over him uh, to try to take away that precision striking, and that he may be able to out pressure, out pressure Jan with his grappling. Um, that's what, you know threat threatening with chokes. I I have a feeling that going into this fight, it's gonna that Faber's reinvigorated, and he's gonna be hopefully flinging fewer overhand rights, and we're gonna see you know some some creative strikes, but mostly that fa- mostly Faber's going to wrestle is my is my hope. Um, and I think I think that's his path to victory. And I think he often lands those strikes off of scrambles or because people are worried about the takedown. If he goes in and tries to strike with Jan, he's going to get picked apart. I agree. So you think it's going to be takedowns that win this bout for Faber? Yep, I do. At the end of the day. Yes. Interesting. I do, I do wonder what is uh, Jan's takedown defense percentage? I'm looking at it right now. His takedown, he's defended 60% of the takedowns landed against him. Honestly, that's a fair point because Faber has better takedown defense. Faber has 40% takedown accuracy, and he gets about a takedown and a and half. And Jan has not, Jan has not Jan fought a, gets, UFC, a UFC grappler anywhere near Faber's uh, as far as like, like 
MMA wrestling goes. Douglas Silva to Andrade's not at Faber's level, right? Dodson's really a striker, and Jimmy Rivera's really a striker. We have not seen him in there against like a team alpha male grappler. Yeah, and, and so you're also saying that Faber's going to be able to keep him down once he gets him down, because I think that's probably going to be key since Yan is generally so much more busy. Keep him down or land, or, or land big off of the scrambles. Because that's where Faber get that's so, where Faber gets his chokes and land and often lands damaging blows. I'm looking at the numbers now, Nick, and Peter Yan actually lands 5.76 strikes per minute, which is very very high. Uriah Faber lands 2.68. I mean, about less than half the number of strikes. Uh, and uh, on top of that, Peter Yan's a little bit more accurate. Peter Yan does absorb more because he takes more chances, but Peter ends up uh, landing his strike differential. He ends up landing. Two over two strikes more than his opponent per one minute, whereas Faber is basically even with his opponent often enough. It seems like throughout their UFC careers, very interesting matchup. They seem to get a similar number of takedowns per fight, and I know Yan has only recently started fighting the truly high level guys. Faber, like I said earlier, does have the better takedown defense. This should be very very interesting. Faber actually has two and a half times more fight time than does Yan. I think Faber's comeback is a little bit overrated. His win over Ricky Simone was probably a product of more of a fortunate effect of a clean shot. Like, he landed that right hand and he meant to, but I think he was fortunate that it hurt Ricky Simone. Because as the fight wore on, I still believe that Ricky Simone probably would have taken that one. But, yeah, look, Faber retired by losing semi-competitive decisions to the very top fighters in the world, right? Jimmy Rivera, Dominic Cruz, Frankie Edgar, Henan Burrell, back in the day anyway. So it's not, it's not like he was getting blown out of the water by mediocre fighters. So still a high-level fighter, and I think a great gatekeeper to the stars, and that's exactly what he's going to serve here for Peter Yan. Uh, interesting that you're picking him. Uh, this is one where, where you differentiate. What's your first pick? Uh, so my, my first pick is um, the immortal Matt Brown. I'm picking to beat a fighter that I like a lot, um, Ben Saunders. Um, the fact is that Brown's, Brown's really durable, um, Saunders is not known for lighting up the liver, which is Brown's one weakness. Like if anything, Saunders gets, you know, if he can get a clinch, which I don't think he's probably going to get against Matt Brown. Um, he goes with, you know, sort of like knees, knees to the head. It's also not knee. It's usually kick body kicks, not knees that put Brown down. I just think Sa- Saunders chin is not great. He leaves his head, uh, way out there and Matt Brown still has uh, pop. And I just think at this stage he's a little he's a little more durable. Um, Saunders does have really good uh, jujitsu, but Brown's no slouch. So I just think I, I think it's much 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 more likely that Brown finds that chin before Saunders finds Brown's liver. Yeah, I think you're probably right, and I'm picking Matt the Immortal Brown here as well. The thing is that Matt Brown is coming back from a long hiatus. He hasn't fought since back in 2000, November 2017, so we're talking two years off. Um, he was 1-3 and three leading up to that Again, playoff. Against monsters, two though. and 4. True, Donald Cerrone, Jack, well, Jake Ellenberger is not exactly a monster in 2016. Damian Maia is phenomenal, obviously. Johnny Hendricks and Robbie Lawler beat him before that. He actually has a win over Tim Means back in 2015. Um, but it was Diego Sanchez. That was his last win. And he beat him by knockout. And Sanchez looked pretty decent since then. And he hasn't exactly been getting blown out of the water like uh, Brown did to him. But I do see the potential. Um, you said that Killer B doesn't land a whole lot to the body. He throws a lot of those body kicks. So I definitely see the potential. Killer B tends to have very close first rounds. 
before his opposition either knocks him out or finishes him in that second or third round. So I can definitely see the possibility of Saunders, especially against Brown, who hasn't been fighting regularly at all, whereas Saunders has been. Uh, three or four times he fought, four times he fought in 2018. Granted, he was one and three in those fights, don't get me wrong. But he fought four times, uh, five, six times in the time that Matt Brown has been off. So I do see the possibility of him landing a body kick in the first round, which is really all, all it will take to take Brown out, I think. Um, first round tends to be competitive for him. So I see the possibility, and that's why I didn't have him as my first or second pick. But I did have him in the third spot, Matt Brown, uh, on my list. My second pick, Nick, is going to be one of the three title fights. It's going to be the champion who I think is most likely to retain in this one. I'm going to pick Amanda Nunes to beat Jermaine Durandamy. Now, I know that Jermaine has excellent, excellent striking. She's going to have the edge in height and probably reach in this matchup. But Amanda Nunes is in a different confidence level. She's in a different league. Um, Looking at it here... Actually, a two-inch reach advantage for Durandamy and a one-inch height advantage, even though she is four years older than the 31-year-old Amanda Nunes. I think Amanda Nunes is the pound-for-pound queen. I think she she's the pound-for-pound possibly best fighter in the world, period. But certainly the pound-for-pound best female fighter on the planet. And I like her chances against the Iron Lady at age 35. I know that she's at her best right now, Durandamy is. She's coming off that Aspen Lad win, but we didn't really see that fight go anywhere. She was able to score that first round TKO, and it was a very early stoppage. Um, she beat Raquel Pennington and Holly Holm before that. The Holly Holm win is in question. A lot of folks believe that Holly I, Holm I struck her, even though I personally think that Durandamy. Uh, yeah, but uh, here's the thing: I rewatched the fight. Durandamy landed huge shots when she landed. Holly Holm pitter pattered like she always does. That's really all that Holly Holm can throw for the most part. Holm landed harder shots on Cyborg, in my opinion, than she did on Durandamy. Durandamy would take a few shots, and then she would plant her feet and wallop her in the head with a huge right hand. And if Holly Holm could take it, and she did get buzzed once or twice, I think that Amanda Nunez can take it. I like Nunez's five-round experience, and I like that Nunez smoked Holly Holm in the first round, whereas Durandamy was kind of competitive with a slightly younger Holly Holm, granted, uh, leading into that. So I do like the best female fighter pound for pound on the planet, and I'm surprised that she wasn't uh, picked already before this. Yeah, I think Nunes is, prob- is probably going to win. It's also one of those weird things where I could see Durandamy ha- either maybe hurting her a little bit early or just having a super disciplined fight and fighting her the way that um, Shevchenko does. Um, but I think mostly this is most likely going to look like the Holly home fight. I just seen, I see Nunez countering with a huge right hand off of a kick or something and just dropping her. Yeah. Between these two girls, they, they are the two knockout out, knockout artists at 135 pounds or 145 pounds. And they're actually two of the only three champions at 145, uh, in this matchup here. I do. I Look, I can see Durandamy defending takedowns and actually outscoring her on the feet. It, it is possible. That's her way to win. But it's hard to hard to argue with Amanda Nunes' serious power. I know she's got a couple of inches of reach disadvantage, but so did Holly Holm. And Holly Holm was able to score on her. Nunes is going to score way harder. So we're on the same page on that one. Oh, What's boy. Next pick, buddy? It, gets really, it gets really difficult now. Um, it does. These are all some. Just so there, there are... Very, very, very tough picks. I'm going. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, Jeff Neal to beat Mike Perry. Uh, I like. I like Mike Perry a lot. Um, I'd love to see him fight Matt Brown after this fight. 
I just think that uh, I just think it's one of those things where like uh, Jeff Neal might not be as colorful, but I think he's better everywhere. Um, and that over three rounds, he's gonna you know be more athletic, do more damage. Um, that's pretty. That's pretty much it. What do you think? Yeah, Jeff Jeff Neal is gonna be significantly faster in this matchup. He's got a reach uh, advantage of four inches, which is pretty unusual, I think, with Mike Perry. And Jeff Neal also has a height advantage of an inch. Not a whole lot there, but that reach advantage is going to be significant by the much faster fighter, the much more technical fighter. Uh, Jeff Neal also lands one and a half more strikes per minute than does Mike Perry, and their power levels are fairly close. Mike Perry gets hit a hell of a lot more Mike than Perry's... Jeff Neal Sorry, does. go ahead. And even in that one knock... Uh, well, I was just going to say, even in that one knockdown that Neal took in his last fight against Nico Price, it ended up being because of a huge headbutt. So Mike Perry's fists, maybe they can, maybe they can uh, buzz Neil. It seems like after that first round, if you survive, though, Mike Perry's less likely to knock you out. Um, I like Josh Neil's speed advantage. I like the fact that he's a southpaw. And I like the fact that he trains with Fortis MMA, whereas Platinum Mike Perry actually just switched teams from Greg Jackson's to Fusion XL performance, which I think is where Mike Davis, uh, Rodolfo Vieira, and Ronald, uh, Jacare Souza train. So I, I do. I like Josh Neil, but... I can absolutely see Mike Perry winning this fight. Mike Perry has been looking the best of his entire career in his last couple of bouts. His last fight against Vicente Luque could have gone either way. He picked up a tough decision over Alex Oliveira before that, and he made a stupid mistake against Donald Cerrone, of course, before that. But Mike Perry is a lot better than I think his reputation stands for, and I think he's better than to be 2-2 two and two in his last four fights. So I like... I like Perry. Uh, I like uh, Joff Neal in this one, regardless. But I could see ways. Yeah, Perry I like to win. I like Neal also, and I, this stands for Luke also. I think both Perry and Luke came back a little too quickly from their war in uh, in Uruguay. Um, that was just in August, and Luke Luke already I fought against Thompson, and Perry's fighting now. They both took a sh- a shitload of damage. Perry's nose got destroyed. Like he, I'm sure he was probably concussed from that fight. I'm not. I'm not sure that mid December is enough time. To be honest, I don't know that four months. And ha- like, you're absolutely right, Nick. I totally forgot about that nose break. That's like, a very good point. It just seems. It seems early to me. It really is. Less so with Luke. I think either Luke or Mike Perry going up against Stephen Thompson. That's about what that fight is going to look like. Like the way that Vincente Luke uh, lost to Thompson. He's just going to get walloped as he waits forward. But Mike Perry just had his nose broken. In August of this year, that's just a few months ago. I've had my nose broken a couple times, yeah. throughout and not and not a not a little bit broken. Oh yeah, it was mangled, like... <laughs> facing the wrong direction, absolutely. And and there's no way that his nose was ready for that extremely fast Joff Neal left cross. And I think once he tags him a couple times with that, it's going to bother Perry. It might actually motivate Perry and make him all the more angry. But as the fight wears on and he takes a few more of those dingers on the nose, I think it's going to discourage him and I think it's going to make him close up a little bit. Actually, for that reason, I wouldn't be surprised if Joff Neal ends up scoring a finish of Mike Perry by TKO, even though that's fairly rare. But yeah, we're on the same page uh, on the pick with this one. And you're right, man. Mike Perry's coming back too quick. What's uh, what's next for you? Um, my My next picnic is going to be... And I do have some trepidation about this matchup, but I'm going to pick Marlon Marais to beat Jose Aldo. I think Jose Aldo cutting down to 135 is probably one of the bigger factors here. The fact of the matter is that Marlon Marais can fight competitively, as we saw in his first couple of UFC bouts. But he ends up not getting a couple of those quick knockouts. He ends up looking really good in the first round of his title fight against Triple C, uh, Henry Cejudo. 
it seems like when Henry Cejudo started pressuring him is when everything started to fall apart. And he was on a four-fight winning streak leading up into that fight. But once Henry Cejudo started pressuring, once he heard him buzzed him once, it seemed like it was all over and uh, Marlon Moraes did not have the same gas tank. He wasn't able to keep up to the same extent and ended up getting TKO'd late in that fourth round. I don't like the odds of Jose Aldo pressuring him. I don't like the odds of Jose Aldo having the output, especially at 135, especially after a crazy weight cut, to really put some damage on Marais. Obviously, Aldo can always land that body shot, can always finish him early if Marais is not in a good headspace. I do have to say quickly, Marlon Marais has just changed, switched his team from the Ricardo Almeida uh, group in Jersey. He moved down oh, to wow. Florida. I didn't know that. And is training with American Top Team now. Yeah, and I think that could be a difference maker. I think it's weird that uh, anytime a fighter switches camps, there's usually a little bit of an introductory period where it takes a little while for him to get used to get used to this new training system. But he is going down there and joining his old friend and teammate um, Barboza. And Barboza has a very similar style to Aldo, except he's much bigger than Aldo. He's just as fast with the leg kicks, uh, fairly similar hands. Although Aldo, uh, I think, has much better boxing and a better chin. Wait, Barboza, Barboza left Jersey? Oh, yeah. He left a little while ago. I think Marlon Rice recently just went out Oh, to wow. So, every, so all these guys have been leaving Mark, have been leaving Mark Henry Almeida. I did yeah, not know that, that. Yeah, that's right. It's, I'm not sure what's going on over there. I'm not sure if it's issues or it's just maybe coming off of losses and looking for a new look on their careers. From what I understand, Barboza left because of his old trainer was at American Top Team, the what trainer that he started his career with. He kind of wanted to go back to his roots where he's familiar, maybe to some warm weather uh, where there's a heck of a lot more Brazilians, I think, down in Florida than there are in Jersey. Uh, I, I think it's just a little bit closer to home for these guys. So I do like Magic Marlon Marais. I, I could see Jose Aldo doing really well in the first round, but that's the thing. Jose Aldo doesn't continue to do well. He he tapers down, especially after a serious weight cut. I don't know how his chin will be against Marais' explosive strikes early on, and I don't know what his cardio is going to be like in that second and third round. Marais might slow down, but I expect uh, Jose Scarface Aldo to slow down significantly more. So I have Marais here. This is a tough one. I think this is a pick 'em, but I think you're prob- I think you're you're probably right. Um, very. I mean, what an exciting fight, though. I just I'm not that interested in seeing Aldo at 135. So it's like a bitter. I, I want to see him succeed. You know, after all this time, even though he put Frankie down twice. Well, not down, but he beat Frankie twice. Um, I you know I want to like Aldo's Aldo's great. I don't want to see him uh, you know make a bunch of wrong decisions and get and get messed up. Um, it's no fun. It's not. It's uh, here's put it this way. It's not fun watching Jose Jose Aldo lose. Um, and I like and I like Marais a lot, but I think you're, I think you're probably right. Um, my next pick, I'm gonna pick Kai Car of France over Brandon Moreno, and I know that Moreno has fought a slightly more elite competition, but for me, Kai Car of France is one. Just seems to me this is gonna be one of those like intangible things. He seems like a guy who fights to win, who's uh, always uh, he, and I think he fights um, intelligently. Brandon Moreno for me is one of those guys who always ends up fights where he does just enough to lose. And I really think that's a, that's like a mentality and a K and a fight IQ um, thing, but I just I think Kai Kara France is a is a guy who's going to continue to win fights, and Brandon Moreno is a guy who's going to continue to be in split decisions, or draws, or get beat in fights that he might have been talented enough to win. I just haven't seen him. Maybe he'll turn a corner the way that somebody like Andre Feely turned a corner, but I haven't I don't haven't seen any evidence that Brandon Moreno is going to turn the corner. And I feel like Kai Kara France is surging. 
Yeah, I thought that Brendan Moreno clearly deserved the decision over Askar. Askar, I've actually rewatched the fight, and I thought he easily took the first round. I thought he got a knockdown. I'm not easily. I'm sorry. He took a competitive first round, got a knockdown in the second round, and then clearly dominated the third round. And he ended up with a split draw in that one. And then he got a TKO, a first-round TKO against Michael Perez, who was 6-1 and one at the time before that. Yeah, I don't know if it's a fight IQ thing. I think it's more of just like a lack of skill thing early in his career. He was mostly just a grappler. I think he's putting a lot more of his game together now. And he showed it against the Dagestani Askarov in his last fight where he got several turnovers, a couple of takedowns. He hurt him on the feet a couple of times and then knocked him down with a head kick. So I do think Brandon Moreno's putting it all together. Um, and Kai Carl France, of all those city kickboxing guys, I think he has the most holes. And I think the fact that he has seven losses kind of points to that a little bit. Um, he's a really solid pressure fighter. He tends to go for takedowns. He mixes it up, uh, throws a lot of strikes per minute. I do like Kakar France here, but by a really close margin, I expect this to be a split decision win either way. And, uh, and I ended up, uh, favoring Kakar France because of just his physicality more than anything else. And the fact that he's riding that wave with city kickboxing with what I believe is, you know, an elite team in that case. Did you have this further down the list? Or were you going to pick it? I, I had it. I had it. Well, I mean, look, most of these bouts that we're discussing at this point or are pickums, right? Yeah. Anything after like the first three or four are pickums. So I do think this is very much a pickum fight. I had this one scheduled for maybe three or four picks later. Oh wow. Okay. What I had you, it at number nine out of thirteen. What do you have next? I'm trying to pick between a couple of these bouts. I think I'm going to end up going with uh, Viviana Arujo over Jessica I. I like Viviana's first couple of UFC bouts. She went in there on short notice in her UFC debut and got a resounding third-round knockout victory. Really impressive stuff. And then she came into a fight against Alexis Davis, a much more experienced opponent, at 125, and was able to outwork a really experienced, really crafty opponent in that case. And it was somewhat of a competitive bout, but again, it's Alexis Davis. She's beaten some top female fighters at 135 and 125. Um, I think Jessica, I like, if you watch, I've said this before, if you watch her fight and you just like look at a couple seconds here and a couple seconds there and five seconds uh, uh, later on in the bout, you think, wow, she's really technical. She's got really good skill. But then when you actually watch her compete and you actually watch, you know, five minutes of a round, you realize, oh, she doesn't really put it together very well at all. And she makes really bad decisions. I know that Jessica, I is coming off of three wins leading into that Valentina Shevchenko shellacking that she took, a second-round knockout uh, loss back in June of this year. Arujo, I think, has the power to hurt her, especially after she was recently knocked out. She's busy enough, I think, to uh, get a decision over her. And I think her footwork, her speed, I think there's a lot of advantages on top of the fact that Viviano Arujo's uh, wrestling overall is pretty solid, and I think she should be able to avoid most of I's takedowns and maybe engage and initiate a couple of her own. Rojo lands five strikes per minute. I lands three and a half. That's quite a difference. Uh, her accuracy or Rujo's is significantly bigger. It's almost 50%, where I's is at 36%. And I like the fact that Rojo gets three takedowns per fight, where Jessica I only gets about half, an average of half a takedown per fight. So I, I just feel like a lot of these stats are in her favor. I favor Viviana Arujo Gomez over Jessica Evil Eye. Oh man, this uh, on the matchup, Nikolai. gets real, real tough now. Um, do you agree with the picnic? I do. I do. Um, sorry, cool. I've been think. I'm just trying to think about like what it. I'm looking at all these, and there's no easy. There's just no easy fight yeah, left there to really pick. Are no easy outs. 
Um, That's true. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with uh, Caitlin Vieira to beat Irene Aldana. Caitlin Vieira is coming off of you know three wins in the last two years. She doesn't fight all that frequently, but wins over Zingano, Sarah McMahon, and Ashley Evans Smith um, is you know is pretty good. I did think that um, Irene Aldana. Um, you know, she looked, I thought she looked good against, uh, Vanessa Mello. And I thought that she maybe did enough to win against Rocky Pennington, but it was, it was certainly close. And then of course she submitted the fighter that you and I love, uh, Beth Correa. Um, and yeah, yeah she has a split decision against Kuchagin. I mean, this is, this is, ver- this is really, really a pick em fight. Um, I just... I just like uh, I like what we've seen from Vieira a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, just looking at Aldana's think? record, I think I had her I had um assumed that she was a little bit better than she is. She can beat the girls that are pretty mediocre. She can beat the Vanessa Mellos, the Bechkohes, the Lucy Pudilovas, the Tatiana the, the Talita Bernardos of the world, right? And Bechkohea before she finished her, it was a very, very competitive fight. In fact, Bech was starting to kind of uh, put it on Arena Aldana a little bit there toward the end. So she's really competitive with these mediocre girls, but she does tend to beat them by close competitive decision for the most part. Rocky Pennington, I thought, scored takedowns in two of those rounds and, and earned that victory, although it was somewhat competitive. And then she lost to Caitlin Chukagan and Leslie Smith before that. I just feel like anybody with a pretty solid overall skill set who doesn't have any glaring weaknesses, Aldana struggles against. And Caitlin Vera, look, she's not great standing up. She's okay there, right? She's a big girl, 5'8", with a 68-inch reach. She is 10-0, looking pretty solid in her UFC career thus far, having beat Kant Sangano, Sarah McMahon, Ashley Evans-Smith. Look, Sarah McMahon is a solid goddamn victory, and Sarah McMahon wins every first round she ever fights. Not only that, submitting submitting an Olympic wrestler. True, uh, true. Uh, Granted, an exhausted Sarah McMahon who falls apart as soon as that first round ends for the most part. (laughs) Kazangano, it it was a fairly competitive, it was a somewhat competitive fight. It ended up being a split decision, but I thought Vieira pretty clearly earned that victory. These are high-level good fighters that Vieira is able to beat, whereas Aldana struggles against anyone with half a name in the division. So I'm on the same page with you here. Uh, The chance for Aldana to win is to avoid takedowns, which she's generally pretty good at. Her takedown defense is solid. And if she can avoid all takedowns, she can win this fight. But she really only throws one thing, Nick, and that's a jab cross. I mean, th- there is almost no other strike that you can expect from Aldana except for a jab or a jab cross or just a cross. That's it. Just those two strikes in some combination. So I do like Vera's uh, overall just the fact that she brings a lot more to the table and uh, we're on the same page. On yeah, that one. the one thing to consider, though, that's in the other that's in the other category is that Vera was meant to fight Tanya Evinger. Uh, over a year ago and pulled out with a knee injury and she hasn't fought since then she hasn't fought in almost two years um so it's worth i'm yeah i'm curious i'm curious at what she's been up to i'd like to know a little bit more about that knee but it sounds like it could it sounds like likely if she's been off for almost two years that it should be rehabbed it's not like she's coming back too early it just may, i just wonder what the how serious the injury was yeah, I, th- I think you're probably right. That that is that is a very interesting dynamic. Um, I didn't even realize that it's been two years since she fought, and that could be almost. A factor. It'll be two Aldana years. It'll be two years very, in March. Busy. Yeah, and Aldana's been very busy. She's super comfortable in the octagon, especially against the girl that maybe to Aldana is not a very big name. Um, I, I could certainly see Aldana taking it, but again, we're in pick'em territory at this point. 
My next pick is going to be another title fight. And it's the one that I thought that I would actually go the other way leading into this event, leading into watching tape. Um, it's the fight between Kobe Covington and Kamara Usman. My thought initially was that Covington might be so very busy that he might overwhelm Kamara Usman, who doesn't really throw a whole lot. At least that's what I thought. But then looking at their stats, Nick, I realized that Kamara Usman's very, very similar in his style. He really is. He Size-wise, they're very similar. Usman's 6 feet to Kobe Covington's 5'11". Usman has a 4-inch reach advantage, which I think might play a factor. Uh, Usman being the orthodox fighter versus the southpaw and Kobe Covington. One of the bigger, more important stats is the fact that significant strikes landed per minute. Kobe Covington lands 3.9, and he's known as an extremely busy fighter. Granted, he doesn't land a lot of his strikes, right? Kumar Usman lands 4.2 strikes per minute. So more than Kobe Covington, which was surprising to me. His accuracy is 54%, which is significantly more than Kobe Covington's 37%. And I think that can make a big difference. On top of that, Covington absorbs more strikes than does Usman. So not only does Covington land less, but he absorbs more. And I think that Usman, on top of everything else, on top of the fact that both these guys are excellent wrestlers, and Covington, by the way, has an average of six takedowns per 15 minutes to Usman's four. Um, I like Usman here because I think their styles are similar. Usman is actually more accurate, even though Kobe might be a little bit busier. But Usman has more power. He has more strength. I know that Usman competed at Division Two as an All-American, whereas Kobe Covington competed in the Division One level. But Usman won the Division Two title, whereas Kobe Covington and, tra- and trained with the Olympic guys. And exactly, and ended up training with with the Olympic team after that. Uh, I assume in hopes of eventually making it uh, to represent the U.S. in the Olympics. He never ended up doing that. I'm not sure what's behind that exactly. But Kobe Covington ended up ranked fifth at the Division One level, which is extremely impressive, right? These really are two different leagues. Um, and then he ended up placing fifth in the in the big tournament. I, I just feel like the power and size advantage that Kamaru Usman brings to the table, on top of the fact that he's about as busy as Kobe Covington, as it turns out. Um, I, I like his chances here. We've seen Kamaru Usman essentially outgrapple essentially I grapple everyone, right? He out-wrestles everyone. His takedown defense in the UFC, Nick, is 100%. Keep in mind, Tyron, Wood- Tyron Woodley is a D1 All-American. Right, right. And Kumar Usman took him down at will. He absolutely took him down every moment that he wanted to. Uh, Kobe Covington, however, was taken down by Rafael Dos Anjos. Kumar Usman had a shutout victory over Dos Anjos. And Dos Anjos won at least one round over Kobe Covington. Some would say two rounds, right? So... Just that alone tells me a lot. The fact that Kobe was actually susceptible to two takedowns by Dos Anjos, whereas Kumar Usman wasn't even close to getting taken down by the guy. I like Usman's chances here in a title fight. I initially thought that I was going to favor Covington because of how busy he is. But Usman, I think, has it all together, including a great team behind him, including the fact that a lot of people like him and his team. Whereas Kobe Covington is literally the most hated person even by his own teammates. So I wonder how many of these super high-level guys were willing to lend a helping hand to Covington leading into this bout. How many of them were willing to give him serious rounds and give him their best? Um, whereas the Nigerian Nightmare is super, super respected at Hard Knocks 365. And I think he had all the training parts he, uh, partners that he wanted. They actually have a bunch of opponents in common. Worley Alves, Damian Maya, Rafael Dos Anjos. Um, Worley Alves is actually the only man to beat Colby Covington. Both of these guys, by the way, their records are 15-1. I mean, there are so many ways in which these guys mirror each other. I think this matchup is fascinating. 
but I am sticking with the champion Usman. Nick, what do you think? I think this is a real pick I want Usman, but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't letting my, my fandom uh, overwhelm me, that my, that my hate of, of Covington's shtick um, wasn't you know negatively that. informing me. But the fact is, like I, Covington did struggle a bit with Dos Anjos in those um, later rounds. Third and fourth round, I think. Right, in the third and fourth. And also, like, this, the fight that made Covington look like a cardio machine, and he does have great cardio, but I do think that his victory over Robbie, over Lobby, Robbie Lawler is a little bit inflated um, in, term, in terms of, because Lawler's been shot for a while, and he had been gassed, and Covington just, like, you know, ran over him. But he, it's not like he's, it's not like he's cardio murdered anyone else um, to death. So it's, um, I, I, you know, I just don't want to pick Usman. And, I didn't want to pick Usman and then feel like terrible about it because I don't know about Colby's activity. I don't, you know, it, it's if Usman can get him up against the cage and do damage, like he definitely, he definitely hits harder. Um, it's just there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of unknowns. If Covington is strong enough to take him down and is and is you know faster and has better cardio he may be able to win this what i'd love to see is is usman you know like take his nose off but with an elbow um so we'll see but i'm glad uh listen i'm glad this is your pick and not mine let's put it that way um yeah i I hear that so uh my next uh my next pick i'm gonna pick ian heinish over amari uh um and i know we want to get to the the big you know the big fight so i'll be quick on this um, I just, I like Heinish. I think he's a, um, very, very, uh, durable guy who's good everywhere. And, uh, even though he finds himself in some bad positions, he can usually find his, his way out of them. Um, I like Akhmedov, um, but I just, I think Heinish has fought, has uh, fought a little bit better competition. And I think he'll just, I think he'll just kind of, I think he'll just do more here. Um, he also hasn't been knocked out by, by Sergio Moraes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually disagree with this pick, and I think this is the first one that you and I... Oh, no, this is the second bout that you and I disagree on. I like Omari Wolverine Ahmedov in this one. I think that he's probably going to be able to get takedowns on Heinich, and I think that he's probably going to be hitting harder than Heinich on the feet. I like that the Russian trains with American Top Team, which in my opinion is one of the elite teams, the, the elite big box teams in the world right now. They're able to somehow uh, manage and train and game plan for what feels like dozens of super high level fighters. And most of them are fairly successful consistently. Um, uh, he, the Russian has a one inch reach and height advantage. He trains with the better, better team. Factory X is a decent team. Oh shit! I thought he was, he was Dagestani. I didn't realize I was picking against a Dagestani fighter. That's right. Yeah, which I I know shit. you're not a fan of doing. Um, it, look. Oh man, I shouldn't. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> um, Heinich actually lands more per minute. He takes less offense per minute to his credit. As you said, he's fought the higher level of comp, uh, competition overall. Um, I I like that Omari actually gets takedowns in his bouts, and I like that Heinich in his last bout against. Uh, who did he just fight, Nick? Heinish fought Brunson. Brunson, yeah, it was Brunson's takedown offense that was the death knell for him. Now I know that Heinish fought Antonio Carlos Jr. and Cesar Ferreira, but both of these guys are shot at this point. Both of these guys 
uh, don't have nearly the same gas tank in the second half of the fight as they do in the first half. I'm not sure that that'll be the problem here. I think Ahmedov is going to pace himself enough. I think his conditioning is going to be at a decent point, even though I know in the past he's suffered a little bit in that way. And I think he's going to have enough to get a couple of takedowns, uh, score some, score enough points to pick up a decision win in this matchup. So another one that you and I disagree on, which is fairly rare recently, I, I would say. Nick, my next one is going to be the last title fight left. I'm actually surprised that you let me pick all of the title fights on this card. In the fight between Alexander Volkanovsky and Max Holloway, Volkanovsky at plus 150, Max Holloway at minus 170. Max Holloway is obviously great, right? He's he's accomplished so much at, at 145. He's beaten literally the very best names in the division. The thing is that the majority of Max Holloway's opposition, they have holes in their games, right? Frankie Edgar is, you know, a fraction of what he used to be. Not that he was ever this dynamic super, super hitter or anything like that. Um, but he was able to have a competitive first round with Frankie where maybe Frankie picked up that first round and then slowly Max just started taking over. Dustin Poirier was able to outpressure him. He had the power. He also had a good bit of size over Holloway, and I think that can make a big difference. Holloway is the significantly bigger man in this matchup over Alexander Volkanovsky. He's going to, Volkanovsky is only 5'6", man. So Max Holloway is going to have a 5-inch height advantage, but Volkanovski does have two and a half inches of reach on Holloway, which I was pretty surprised about uh, when I saw it in, in the. I, mean, I was I was surprised about that also. Yeah, Holloway and Volkanovski land about between six and seven strikes per minute. They're pretty even in that sense, but Volkanovski is significantly more accurate at fifty nine percent. Granted, against overall lower level of competition. On top of that, Max Holloway gets hit four and a half times per minute. Volkanovski only two and a half, and I think that's going to be significant in this matchup as well. On top of that. Volkanovski scores almost three takedowns per round. And I think he might just be able to score a takedown or two against Max, even though he won't be able to hold him down. I think Volkanovski's nasty with his ground and pound. I think he's really come into his own with the stand-up. Um, I, he, look, he game plan just correctly for Jose Aldo, realizing exactly what he needed to do to stay out of danger. He wanted to low-kick Aldo first so Aldo wouldn't have the chance to low-kick him back. He was able to land strikes at him at a distance where Aldo really had no success countering. He was able to fake and faint his way to making Aldo super nervous and afraid to throw anything at all. Chad Mendes, say what you will about the fact that Chad Mendes hurt him for a moment, but it's not like Mendes was winning the entire fight. Mendes scored a couple, t- couple of takedowns, and Volkanovski popped right back up to his feet seconds later, and Mendes did buzz him at one point. But Mendez is always excellent in the first round. Against just about anyone that he fights, he looks really good. And Mendez hits really hard. He does. He hits like a fucking Mack truck. And Volkanovski recovered in no time at all. That's the thing is that Volkanovski knows to apply this right kind of game plan against his opponent. He doesn't fight Mendez the same way as he fights Aldo. The same way as he fights Elkins, right? He triggered his game plan specifically to his opponent's weaknesses every single time. And I like that in this matchup too. I like that he has the example of... Holloway's loss to Poirier as to how he can beat him. Poirier does this thing where he throws a jab and then uh, a cross, and then he switches stances and throws a right cross from his opposite stance. Volkanovski does something fairly similar. I could see that working. I could see Volkanovski holding uh, Max Holloway against that fence effectively and scoring with knees to the body and to the legs. I could see Volkanovski scoring the occasional takedown. I'm favoring Alexander the great Volkanovski in this matchup, Nick. I really thought that I was going to be the most confident against Max Holloway. I thought that I was going to place a bunch of money on Max Holloway at fairly close odds. Um, I'm still probably going to bet a little bit on Holloway in a parlay and a little bit on Volkanovski and quite a bit on Volkanovski as well, especially as an underdog. 
I just think Volkanovsky is a guy with just about no holes. He hasn't. He doesn't really have that way where you follow these six steps and you beat Volkanovsky. Or uh, generally, Max Holloway, he needs an opponent like that to look really good, right? Frankie Edgar, he doesn't have a lot of power. He's not going to be able to reach you for the most part. If you can keep your footwork uh, going and you can put some numbers on him, you're going to do damage. There's a clear answer for that. Brian Ortega lost every round up until he gets a submission victory. So Max Holloway just needed to avoid that submission. And he can beat him every round like Ortega lost every round in the UFC outside of that. Jose Aldo, just survive the first round. And then you can take over from there. Anthony Pettis, Ricardo Lamas, Jeremy Stevens, Charles Oliveira, all these guys have pretty glaring holes in their games that Max Holloway was able to exploit. I don't think he's going to have that here against Volkanovski. And so I favor uh, Alexander the Great for a huge victory here and putting City Kickboxing truly on the map. I think that team is probably going to end up being team of the year, uh, especially after this fight. And uh, I think they're going to end up holding two UFC titles after having none in the years leading up to 2019, Nick. Okay. Well, I'm going to uh, – I that's a tough one, man. I um, my, my instinct was exactly everything that you said, but I was very hesitant uh, to pick. I thought – I guess we ended up in a game of chicken with the with the title fights, and you, you took the bait with each one. Um, but I don't disagree – I don't disagree with where you ended out anywhere, to be honest. Um, my next my next pick is I'm gonna pick the teenage dream Chase Hooper, even though he's 20 and should change that nickname, uh, over Dan- <laughs> Daniel Tamer. Tamer just except for his last fight hasn't been very successful. He's also small for 145. He's five five. Um, I think his reach is 69. Chase Hooper's six one. He's gonna have a six inch reach advantage. When you see a 20 year old coming in uh, like this with a bunch of finishes, both via strikes and via submission. I feel like uh, I feel like this is a real prospect going in there against a guy that's lost a lot, and uh, the, this is a this is a, as close as you can get to a showcase fight for Chase Hooper. Now the odds are very close; they've even got Daniel Tamer like favored a little bit, or it's more or less a pick 'em though. Um, but I think this is going to be. Uh, I think we're going to see a young kid, uh, uh, you know, come in and uh, fly, you know be kind of flashy. Yeah, so it seems to me like when Chase is standing up and he's got a heavy hitter in front of him, he's going to get handled. But he generally survives. I mean, he's, he's still undefeated at 8-0, right? So he generally survives. He doesn't get finished. And then eventually his opponent gets tired and he can take over from there. Um, Daniel Tambor has shown exactly that ability. He can really hurt you and overwhelm you in the first round and then gets tired because of all that energy he just expended and ends up losing to guys like Chris Fishgold, Julio Aris and Dan Henry. Um, I uh, I ended up slightly, slightly favoring Daniel Tamor because in that first round he's going to land some bombs and and probably do well. The thing is that Daniel Tamor always goes for takedowns, no matter who he fights, and I think that might be that might end up uh, putting him into the web of Hooper. Um, so yeah, I, I, I favor Tamor ever, ever so slightly. Um, I think Nick that you and I now have six picks apiece. And it's going to come down to a tiebreaker that I get to choose because uh, I made the first pick for this event. In the matchup between Oscar Piacetta and Panuhali Soriano, I think I'm going to give. I think I'm going to end up giving the edge to Oscar Piacetta. I know that Soriano is a D1 wrestler, and I know that he has really good stand up and a lot of power. But in the one fight that he went past the first round in his entire career against Jamie Pickett who was 9-3 leading into that bout, so somebody who had a lot more experience than Soriano. 
he was able to take him down. He was able to outstrike him early, but he did get gassed. And I don't like his chances against Oscar Piacetta, who has actually very good stand-up. Right, so he's able to compete with Soriano there, and he has excellent ground game. I know that he got submitted in his last couple of bouts, but uh, against Mirchard, he was dominating him early and then got exhausted for some reason, and Mirchard took over and submitted him. And in his last fight, he essentially fought a guy that is about as high a level of jiu-jitsu as it gets, and Rodolfo Vieira got submitted in the second round. So I'm going to favor Piacetta here. I may regret this if it comes down to the tiebreaker because... Soriano has D1 level wrestling. Maybe he's able to avoid takedowns. I just don't like that Soriano got so tired. And I just feel like he's green at only 6-0 at this point in his career. Do you agree with the pick, Nikolai? I was just going to pull a name out of a hat for this one, so yes. <laughs> yeah, these, these last two bouts, I, I, I had a really, really hard time with. I think it's no wonder they ended up being the last two bouts uh, that we are picking. That does it for our picks for UFC 245. Let's take a break, come back, and give these folks our MMA Geeks betting guide. We'll be back. And we are back to give you guys the MMA Geeks betting guide, the very successful MMA Geeks betting guide. Um, last week, bets for me, Nick. I ended up putting uh, bets on Simone, uh, Overeem, and Kilburn in a $9 parlay. Uh, Calvillo, Lad, and Means uh, ended up winning $118. I ended up losing $55 for a net profit of $63. I'll take it. Not the biggest uh, deal. Um, I actually ended up profiting quite a bit more on my own in in my betting since I did some live betting and added a couple of bets on top of that. Nick, what are your bets for UFC 245? I've got two. I've got two parlays here. Um, I like uh, Mike Perry. I mean, I'm sorry. I like Jeff Neal at minus 250 um, combined with with, uh, Usman at minus 190. And I like uh, a parlay of Volkanovski and Nunez. Volkanovski at plus 150 and Nunez at minus 280. What would you bet on each of those, Nick? Um, I, w- I would bet, I think, 25 bucks on each parlay. Got it. I got you down for that. Great. And I will do the math later as to what you would uh, win or uh, win with those parlays. Um, for me, Nick, I recommend... I actually have a bunch of prop bets and, and a few parlays for this one. So maybe maybe on the risky side... But I'm not putting in a whole lot of money on, on this event. I'm going to recommend a $33 bet on uh, Volkanovski to win $50 over Max Holloway. I already mentioned why I favor Volk over Holloway and I like him at underdog odds. I also recommend a $21 bet on Volkanovski by decision. You get plus 235 odds there. And that $21 bet will net you 49 bucks if he does, in fact, win. So if Volkanovski beats Max Holloway by decision, I end up profiting 100 bucks or 99 in this case. I recommend Kumara Usman, uh, $50 on him to win by decision. Another prop bet at plus 100. So you're basically getting even odds on Umar uh, on Usman, who really doesn't finish guys for the most part, especially uh, at the very top level. I expect him to win a decision. And it's 50 bucks to win 50 in that case. Marlon Marais by decision. 
I don't know how likely it is that he finishes Jose Aldo. I think if Bryce doesn't finish in the first round, he's le- less likely to finish even against a tired Aldo since he himself will slow down. So I recommend $17 to win $50 on Marais by decision. I just uh, like like Marais at plus odds, uh, especially considering he's a favorite here. And then we've got Ahmedov by decision at plus 276 15 bucks to win $41. Um, again, the, the theme here is that I'm putting very little money down uh, not risking a whole lot, but the profit potential is much higher. I like Saunders at plus 400 by finish. I just feel like if he lands that body kick, that fight is over, and I'm only risking $5 on this to win 20 um, Not a whole lot of risk there. A parlay on Uriah Faber and Kamaru Usman, uh, $8 to win $52. If both of those guys come through, I just feel like Uriah Faber has a shot in any fight, and him being such a huge underdog, I figured I'd take advantage and put him in a parlay with Usman. Uh, again, $8 to win 52 bucks if both Usman and Faber come through. I recommend a, a more serious bet on Arujo and Kaikara France. If you bet $30, it's going to end up netting you 50 bucks on Kaikara France and Arujo. I also recommend Arujo in a parlay with Amanda Nunes. It gives you plus 122 odds, $41 to win 50 bucks. That'll be it for me, Nick. I'm expecting another successful week on the betting. I'm going to play with the live betting as well on this one, which was pretty interesting last week. It just puts a whole different level of anxiety to it and excitement. A good one in the books, Nikolai. Looking forward to next week where we actually have uh, UFC Fight Night 165, Frankie Edgar versus Chan Sung Jung. Volkan Ozdemir versus Alexander Rakic is on the card. And then a bunch of fights that we're probably a little bit less interested in, although there are a couple of prospects on this one. Cyril Gane uh, versus Tanner Bozer is on the card, uh, a serious prospect in Gane. Matt Schnell is on the card, which is great. Looking forward to that one. But more importantly, UFC 245 is stacked, and I will be having a lot of fun watching it this weekend. Wow, what's really interesting is, if I'm correct, that's the, the Korea fight card is the last is the last card of 2019 and then yeah it looks like it is Nick you're not kidding I think that the first date in 2020 is the 25th is that possible that there's no events until the 25th of January yeah I don't see yeah I guess you're right you, it's January 25th we're gonna have we're gonna have a pretty open and free January so that's cool we can uh, um, we can have a retreat and figure out what our goal is for the show in 2020 maybe to go from from dozens and dozens of listeners to hundred and hundred of listeners. Folks, when you get the opportunity, follow me on Instagram at Constant Martial Artist. Nick Roger, are you on Instagram? Is it just Nick Roger? Yeah, I don't really use Instagram. Yeah, my wife is a millennial and she's one too, so I definitely back in. Yeah, I like. I like.